Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Shipwrecks, longtime favorite thing on our show from way before Holly and I joined. And today we're taking a slightly different approach to the perennial favorite of shipwrecks. We're going to talk about a shipwreck survivor. Her name is Violet Jessup. She survived a whole lot, and I don't want to spoil it. So that is all I'm saying for the intro. (laughs) Violet Constance Jessup was born on October 2nd of 1887 near Bahia Blanca, Argentina. Her parents, William Jessup and Catherine Kelly, had emigrated there from Dublin in the mid-1880s with the goal of starting a sheep farm. Her life at first was extremely modest. Her father didn't really have enough money for a whole herd of sheep, so they were living in what was basically a one-room structure of adobe bricks. Violet's crib was made out of a gin box. After a while, when it became clear that he wouldn't be able to buy enough sheep to make the farm self-sustaining, Violet's father instead took a series of other jobs, first working as a customs officer and then working for a railroad line. This did put the family on more solid financial footing, but in spite of that, Violet and the rest of her siblings, who were born afterwards, she was the oldest, uh, they had a number of medical catastrophes. And really, regardless of what their income had been like, these catastrophes would have basically been unavoidable at the time. Violet and her younger brother, Ray, at the time when it was just the two of them, both got scarlet fever and Ray actually died of it. Violet later got tuberculosis and then also got typhoid fever. Two of her brothers nearly died of diphtheria. She had four brothers and one sister who survived to adulthood, but she had other brothers and a sister who died while they were still children. Violet's tuberculosis caused her lungs to hemorrhage, and so even after she was old enough to go to school, a doctor actually recommended that she stay home. Later, when Violet was in the hospital and seemed as though she might not recover, it was recommended that she go to the mountains, where the air might give her a few more months. They really did think she was going to die. Her lungs had been seriously hemorrhaging for a long time. So after having lived in Bahia Blanca and Buenos Aires, Violet's father got a transfer to Mendoza, Argentina, which is in the foothills of the Andes Mountains. And Violet's health did get stronger in Mendoza. She seemed to have an aggressively stubborn will to live. And after a while, she was doing well enough to explore their sprawling adobe house with her pet armadillo. I find that wildly charming. Uh, eventually, she was well enough to go to school, which she did gleefully until her father's death when she was in her early teens. She really wanted two things so badly. She wanted to be able to go to school and she wanted to have a sister. But instead, she had a series of brothers, then a sister who tragically died of meningitis when she was a baby, then a sister who lived to adulthood. Uh, So when Violet's father died, her mother decided to take the family to England, even though people worried that Violet's lungs would not be able to handle the English air. This was such a big concern that one of her Argentinian teachers actually offered to adopt her. At this point, Violet was about 16 years old. They had a difficult time, however. Violet's mother had actually been pregnant when her father died, and the baby died shortly after it was born. In spite of the help of Violet's aunt and uncle, they were her mother's sister and her husband, the family had real trouble finding a place to live. There were six children and a mother with no source of income beyond a very small widow's pension. Eventually, it was decided to put the boys in a Catholic orphanage so that they could be educated and raised within their religious faith. 
placing the boys in an orphanage actually allowed their mother to go find work. And she got work as a stewardess in the Royal Mail Line, where she worked for five years. This gave her an income, although because the Royal Mail Line was providing long-distance passenger service across the ocean, it meant that she had long absences and separations from the rest of the family. While her mother was away, it was up to Violet to look after her surviving little sister, Eileen, although this was interrupted by yet another hospitalization for gallstones. Eventually, the two sisters boarded in a convent where they could stay together and be educated. Violet continued to live on at the convent after finding work as a governess. Violet's own health and the various illnesses of her siblings, the death of her baby sister Molly from meningitis, all these things combined together to lead her to want to study nursing. And while she was living in the convent, she set her sights on taking an exam that would allow her to further her education and pursue a career. But then, after her mother had spent five years working as a stewardess, her health became too fragile to continue. And so Violet, recognizing that her family needed a source of more income than she could possibly provide by being a governess, applied to be a stewardess herself, like her mother. And she did so at the Royal Mail Line. We're going to talk about what happened once she became a stewardess on board these ocean liners. Uh, after a brief word from one of the sponsors who keeps our show on the air. When Violet Jessup first applied to be a stewardess, the man who interviewed her was not optimistic about her chances. He told her she was both too young and too pretty. She promised him that she would be as dedicated, careful, and unassuming as possible if he would just give her the job. And finally, he told her the next opening was in fact hers, although it might take some time for a vacancy to open. Jessup and her mother got to work assembling a wardrobe that would be as boring and unattractive as possible. Cracks me up that she had to take those steps. Her memoirs talk about her just trying to find the most dowdy, gray, unappealing outfits possible. Jessup's first post was aboard the Orinoco, which traveled to the West Indies, better known today as the Caribbean. This was really physically demanding work. Ocean liners of this era were a lot more about utility than about vacationing. So today, somebody might get on a similar ship to basically tool around the Caribbean on a pleasure cruise, but most people on ocean liner needed to get from one place to another, typically across an ocean. Uh, it was not about taking time off and relaxing. It was about enduring a long voyage to get to where you needed to go. And not a lot of ports of call with um, exciting activities to partake in. <laughs> <laughs> with transatlantic travel. And then also, we don't really talk about it as, as much in this episode, but the people who were in actual cabins who she, Violet would have been working with as a stewardess, they were in the minority. There were a lot of people in steerage in very unpleasant uh, accommodations. However, in spite of these differences uh, between how we look at cruising now versus how these liners were functioning then, the role of stewardess was very like that of a cabin steward today. Violet would have cleaned cabins, run errands for passengers, delivered meals, generally kept things neat and tidy, and looked after seasick passengers. Sometimes this involved being up all night with people who were ill. Violet Jessup found that getting her sea legs was basically a matter of sheer willpower. But even once she was accustomed to the motion of the sea, the work itself was exhausting. She also didn't get a lot of formal training on the Royal Mail Line, aside from what she picked up herself on the job. 
On her very first voyage, she hurt her thumb, which got infected just as a very severe storm put everybody, crew included, in their berths with with seasickness. And unfortunately, the people who were stricken ill at this point included the doctor. So she wasn't able to be treated for this infected thumb for a while. As she describes them in her memoirs, Violet's first years as a stewardess were quite difficult. In addition to being on her feet doing physical labor on a moving ship all day long, she was also basically confined there with both the passengers and the rest of the crew. From time to time, this led to trouble. On the milder end, there were cliques, infighting, and frustrations among the crew to deal with. She also had to fend off the romantic and physical advances of both passengers and superiors. And in one case, she had a lengthy stay aboard a ship with a bow after he revealed that he had no respect for her religious beliefs, knowing that she was going to break up with him for it once they got to shore. She describes her favorite times in all of these early journeys as being when they were in port, especially because at this point, you know, today you can do laundry on a ship, but this was not the case at the time. So stays in port were lengthier before the ship departed again. This meant that uh, she got to explore. She got to see new things and basically travel a little bit uh, during the time that they were not at sea. So while these long stretches at sea were exhausting and she was very often sick, not just seasick, but she still continued to have trouble with her health, she also delighted in exploring the ports and the cities where they stopped. As her career progressed, this included trips to New York City, which she loved. And she also got to go back to Buenos Aires and say hello to the hospital staff who had been sure, so sure that she was going to die of tuberculosis when she was a child. Eventually, Jessup was serving aboard a ship with a married captain who had previously made advances toward her, which she had rebuffed. The second time around, he he found fault with everything that she did and eventually had her dismissed for flirting with the officers, something she had not done. But she also had no way to disprove this uh, assertion and no way to pursue any sort of recourse. So out of work, she went to find another stewardess job. And she found one at the White Star Line. She did not really want to work for the White Star Line. Its ship sailed the North Atlantic, and she had heard plenty of horror stories about that being a particularly rough crossing with bad weather and threats to the ships uh, from the bad weather and from icebergs. And she hadn't heard anything bad at all about the company itself. She just knew that the hours were long And because of the White Star Line's reputation, exceptional service was both expected and demanded. So it was this combination of exhausting work, extremely high standards for the quality of the work, and the treacherousness of the seas. However, because she had been dismissed from her previous post, she wound up applying for companies that were not at the top of her list. And she wound up being hired by the White Star Line. She served aboard the Majestic, the Adriatic, and the Oceanic en routes that went to New York. Violet Jessup really proved her worth to the White Star Line. She was hardworking. She was dependable, gracious, kind. She was beloved by her passengers, many of whom went on to mention her and her warm, steadfast attention to them through illness and rough seas and other trials, specifically in letters to family and friends. So she was chosen to serve on the Olympic aboard its maiden voyage as part of a hand-picked best-of-class crew. This was a job that started well before the departure as the crew readied the ship to sail. The Olympic was launched on October 20th, 1910, after nearly two years of construction. And at the time, it was considered to be the best and most luxurious ship in the Atlantic. 
Its maiden voyage took place the following June after its construction was completed. In September of that year, as the Olympic was outbound from Southampton, it collided with the HMS Hawk near the Isle of Wight. Violet was aboard. We can logically conclude that she was uninjured, as she does not mention this in her memoirs at all. Yes, this does not seem to have been a big deal enough to even talk about as she was writing her memoir. However, the damage to the Olympic was extensive and took about two months to repair. But once it was seaworthy again, Jessup was back on board, again part of the stewardess crew. After a year on the Olympic, Jessup was once again hand-selected for a maiden voyage crew in 1912. It was aboard the White Star Line's next best-in-class ship, the Titanic. Jessup was in her bunk, sleepily trying to concentrate on her devotions on April 14, 1912, when the Titanic famously struck an iceberg. After the crash, there was a temporary silence, and then her roommate stoically said, Sounds as if something has happened. They both dressed, and Jessup expressed her disbelief when a steward named Stanley told them the ship was sinking. From there, they began escorting passengers to the boats. Her recounting of this part of it sounds almost impossibly calm. Jessup and her roommate took their passengers to the lifeboats, and then with nothing else to do, they went back to their cabin. And it was there that Stanley found them again, told them that the boat really was sinking. This was no longer a matter of just precautions and insisted that they go up to the decks as well. He even rummaged through Jessup's closet to try to find some warmer clothing for her to wear. As Jessup made her way to the deck, the full seriousness of this situation had really not reached people yet. Everything was being described as precautionary and boats were being lowered without many people aboard. But while on deck, the ship started to noticeably shift. And before long, someone handed Jessup a baby, and she and her roommate Anne were put into lifeboat 16. From her position in the lifeboat, Jessup saw the Titanic go down, and she and the rest of the people in her boat were rescued by the Carpathia the following day. A woman who was presumably the baby's mother snatched the baby literally out of her arms after finding her. Uh, Jessup eventually uh, returned to England aboard the Lapland, and... She had a very strange experience much later in her life where someone called her on the phone, claimed to be the baby, laughed and hung up. And it's very unclear whether that was really the baby she had taken off the Titanic or not. Yeah, that that'll weird you right out. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine getting a call like that? Uh, But Jessup's time as a stewardess, despite this tremendous event was not over and we're going to talk about her next position after we have a brief word from another one of our fabulous sponsors that keeps us going so uh i have told you that i am working on starting a sewing blog online mm-hmm. i feel slightly um uh a, a little stunted in this arena because even though i'm using squarespace which is super easy for most people i find myself going uh, how do i do that here's what's awesome you can go to their help se- section and search almost anything, and they have videos on how to do a lot of it, and they have, like, step-by-step, and they have people there to help you all the time. So even somebody like me that's feeling a little clunky-monkey about the whole thing totally can handle it. Uh, Squarespace is going to let you build a simple, powerful, beautiful website. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology to power your site, so they're going to ensure maximum security and stability. And what I really love is that the design is responsive, so that no matter what you're looking at on it, If it's your phone, if it's a tablet, if it's a regular computer, your website is going to scale to look great no matter where you're viewing it from. And if you want to look at commerce, 
every website that Squarespace offers comes with powerful e-commerce capabilities. So you can start a trial. Here's what's really cool with no credit card required. So you can just build that website without really stressing over whether or not you're wasting your your monthly fee on trying to build it, which is where I'm at right now. So when you go to Squarespace and we encourage you to do so, make sure to enter the offer code history to get 10% off your Squarespace account. Show your support for the show. And again, you're saving 10%. So it's great. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Violet Jessup's voyage aboard the Titanic had obviously been terrifying, and consequently, she felt as though she needed to get back to work on a ship immediately, or she would never be able to do it at all. However, obviously, jobs at the White Star Line were very hard to come by because its flagship vessel had just sank. And after she got a letter from Ned, that's the old bow that we alluded to earlier, Jessup took a job aboard another line as a way to secure passage to Australia, where Ned was living. Her roommates graciously agreed to cover for her while the ship was in port so that she could go spend time with Ned. And she had hoped that the two of them could clear the air, but nothing actually came of this. She returned to her post and she went back home as planned. The the editor who edited her memoirs kind of sort of meditates for a while on how her life might have been different if she had wound up marrying Ned rather than uh, <laughs> briefly marrying some other person later on who's apparently was not a very good marriage and she hardly refers to in her memoir at all. In 1914, after Great Britain declared war on Germany, Jessup decided to join the British Red Cross. She became part of the Voluntary Aid Detachment, where she started as a junior nurse, finally taking on the nursing profession she had so wanted to pursue when she was a child. She trained at a hospital before once again being assigned to a ship, and this time it was another White Star vessel, the Britannic. The Britannic's construction had started about six months before the sinking of the Titanic. It had been conceived as even bigger and more luxurious than that ill-fated vessel. Uh, Since the Titanic sank so early in the construction of the Britannic, a number of safety improvements were included as this new ship was being built, including additional lifeboats and watertight compartments. The Britannic was actually scheduled to begin passenger service in 1915, but instead it was requisitioned for military use. And the Olympic, which uh, we talked about Jessup previously serving on, was requisitioned as well. The Britannic became a hospital ship, and it served from December 23, 1915 through June of 1916, when it was briefly released from the war service before being requisitioned again that August. On November 21st, 1916, the Britannic sank after presumably striking a mine in the water not far from Greece. At the time, people thought that it could have actually been struck by a torpedo. And once again, Violet Jessup was calm. She went to her cabin and she gathered up her prayer book, her toothbrush, a ring that had belonged to Ned, and her clock. She made a pouch out of the front of her apron by folding it up to keep all of these little items secure. And then she clipped her life belt on over her coat and she got onto a lifeboat. So Jessup's recounting of the Titanic is quietly tragic. She counts the lights on the deck as the ship sinks, realizing that it's all lost. But her account of the Britannic sinking is horrifying. And in a way, this is a little incongruous because... More than 1,500 people died on the Titanic, but only about 28 died in the seeking of the Britannic. The difference is that those last moments, as uh, as Violet witnessed them, were terrifying and brutal. The Britannic's propellers were still turning in the water, and this just created chaos. 
It was churning up the water. It was sucking men and debris toward the propellers. And even though she was in a lifeboat, Jessup realized that if she did not get out and swim, her lifeboat was going to hit the propellers as well. She had always instructed passengers not to put their life belts on over their coats in case they needed to take their coats off. And we just mentioned that she did the opposite uh, of what she told them, and that was nearly fatal. In spite of her life belt, the weight of her coat pulled her underwater. She fought her way up, and she struck something with her head from below until finally she caught someone else's arm and she was pulled above the water. One of the ship's motorboats picked her up, and she and others wound up on a tiny island with the Britannic's doctors patching one another up. And though she was injured, she was safe. Thanks to the rescue efforts of other nearby boats, only 28 people, as Tracy said, were killed out of the more than 1,000 people that were on board. So previously, she had immediately gotten to work as a stewardess again after the sinking of the Titanic. But this time she knew that it was going to be hard to find a stewardess job until the war was over. So this time she stayed ashore for about three years. She found a job on land as a clerk, but she had some trouble concentrating. She didn't really think much of it until a lot later when she got an x-ray for a tooth that was bothering her. And she learned that her skull had been fractured as she was trying to get away from the Britannic. So we don't know exactly at what point in her life uh she discovered this skull fracture, but we do know that she didn't stay on land forever. Uh, as for the Olympic, which we've talked about a couple times, uh, it was upgraded again after the war and it resumed service. And once the war was over, Violet Jessup once again served aboard it. And the Olympic continued its transatlantic service until 1935. That was a little less than a year after it struck and sank a light ship off of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And Jessup actually was not aboard for that one. That would have been a few. It's it's not totally surprising that she was aboard both the Olympic and the Titanic because the Titanic's crew was handpicked from other vessels. But having been aboard the Olympic, the Titanic and the Britannic, when all three of those like best of line vessels had incidents, that's a little oddly coincidental that she was on there for all of them. So Violet Jessup spent the a part of her later stewardess career working with the Red Star Line on world cruises. And she worked aboard five different annual world cruises that uh, spanned between 1926 and 1931. She went back to the Royal Mail Line again in 1935 and served on the Alcantara until the start of World War II. During the Second World War, she worked ashore as a nurse again rather than being on another seafaring nursing ship. At the end of World War II, Violet mostly worked at clerical and factory jobs, realizing that her work as a stewardess was not going to allow her to retire. And apart from a couple of brief stints at sea, she was landbound until her death on May 5th of 1971. She finished the memoir that we've referenced a few times in 1934, which is one of the reasons why it doesn't include a lot of her later life. But it wasn't published until two of her nieces submitted a manuscript uh, in the spring of 1996. And then, kind of ironically, the the man who wound up editing it was someone who had previously interviewed her as he was doing some work on survivors of the Titanic. So it all comes together in this sort of small world situation. It's very cool. Slightly <laughs> scary if you're afraid of ships and sinking. I've been on ships a lot, and they don't really frighten me 
But when I got to the part about the Titanic sinking, I I was like, what? Okay, every time I've been on a ship, there's been a muster drill. There's enough. Uh, there are enough lifeboats for every person on board. The crew has been exceptionally prompt about escorting everyone to the deck during this muster drill. But I had this thought where I was like, what if the ship sank in the middle of the ocean and there were no <laughs> other ships around? And we were stuck in the middle of the ocean. And then I said, okay, you need to stop thinking about that right now. Yeah. (laughs) Think about something else. So that is Violet Jessup. Do you also have a little bit of listener mail to accompany this episode? I do. Uh, And this is from Jane. And she writes to us about something that a few people have written in about. So I thought it was uh, something to share with everyone. She says, hello, Holly and Tracy. I've been listening to the podcast archives for over a year now, and I'm just now getting close to catching up. I absolutely love history, and listening to the podcast has gotten me through many long flights and car trips, as well as my daily commute on the subway. Thanks so much for the many hours of entertainment that you and everyone else who has worked on the show have provided. I'm a little bit behind, so I just listened to your podcasts on Plessy versus Ferguson and Brown versus Board. I really enjoyed these episodes and just happened to have listened to a podcast from This American Life around the same time that discusses some of the same issues. Episode 562, The Problem We All Live With. The episode really showed how the legacy of segregation is still affecting education today, and there were some moments in it that were particularly heartbreaking to listen to. I thought you might be interested in listening to this as well as another This American Life episode called Three Miles, episode 550, which discusses some of the same issues. Listening to your podcast about historical segregation and listening to a podcast about its modern day effects in the same week was a wake up call to how historical events continue to have a huge impact on people's lives. Thank you so much for all the important work you do. And thank you so much for handling issues of race, gender and sexuality with such sensitivity and respect. Jane. Thank you, Jane, for writing in. We had several people who were writing to us about um, the problem we all live with, which is actually a two part episode from This American Life. Uh I listened to the first part as it was airing on the radio. And if you listen to This American Life, you know that normally there are brief segments that are kind of tied together around the theme. And so we had the stereotypical NPR driveway moment where we pulled into the parking spot at the grocery store and then waited for the end of the segment. (laughs) And then we realized the end of the segment was actually the end of the episode. (laughs) uh, So we had to stop and do our grocery shopping and not sit in the car for an hour. But um the whole thing is definitely, definitely very well worth listening to. We said pretty briefly in our episodes about uh, Brown versus Board, especially the second one about the aftermath of Brown versus Board, that a lot of issues related to segregation are still uh, in existence today. And a lot of places are as segregated as they were before the civil rights movement. This really contextualizes all of that with real stories of real kids and real parents and real school systems that are affected today. So I strongly, strongly encourage listening to them. Uh, this American Life also has a much broader reach than Holly and I do. So it's possible that uh, the the Venn diagram of people who listen to us but don't listen to This American Life might be a little small. Uh, but the episodes are both so worth listening to that I want to call them out specially. If you would like to write to us, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com or on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. We have a new Instagram. 
Missed in History is our Instagram name. You may have noticed the theme in all of these names. <laughs> we also have a Spreadshirt store where you can buy phone cases and shirts and other cool stuff like that. It's at missinhistory.spreadshirt.com. If you would like to find out more about what we've talked about today, come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and put the word Titanic into the search bar, and you will find how the Titanic worked. You can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and you will find show notes for the episodes that Holly and I have done, and an archive of every single episode ever, and various other cool things that we put up from time to time. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>